All right, it is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016. This is Harambe, <laughs> and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, fair bit to get to, actually. The drought of events is almost over. We are just 48 hours or so away from the kickoff of Bellator 163, which is a surprisingly uh, good card, and a surprisingly... Um, I won't say stacked, but thorough, thoroughly filled card. In any event, we'll get to that. Obviously, UFC uh, Fight Night 98, the Mexican card, is on Saturday, which is another really good card. And we just passed Halloween and everything else. So there's a lot to get to today. Um, your questions and comments are, of course, all welcome in uh, the comment section where this video is posted on MMA Fighting. Um, okay, comments to turn green, get priority, but not exclusivity. I'm trying to think if there's any housekeeping notes. Yes, there are. I had another talk with a t-shirt guy. I think I'm going to get a final look at designs next week. So next week, I get the very last proposed um, graphics about which way to, we're going to go. So we are, we are, I mean, truly, truly almost there. Um, we'll have those things on sale by December or at the latest January. So for folks who've been patiently waiting, there you go. Um, Okay. Also, want to send a shout out to one of, uh, and I did this last week, but the event is this coming weekend. There's Bellator 163. There's UFC Fight Night 98. Want to give a shout out to one of the biggest supporters here of this YouTube channel on MMA fighting. Pete Rubish uh, is a top American powerlifter. He has like given this YouTube channel props on his YouTube channel. And he is going to compete, I think, out in California at the Reebok Record Breakers event. Looking for a 2,100 raw total. I think he can knock on the door of a 2,200 raw total uh, squat, bench, and deadlift. And um, uh, and he'd be doing that at about 242, 243 pounds, which is, if you know anything about powerlifting, that is, an, I mean, to get a 2,100 raw total period is nuts. And to do it at less than 300 pounds, at less than 250 pounds, is absolutely bonkers. Um, so big shout-outs to Pete Rubish. Go subscribe to his channel if you haven't already. And uh, good luck, Pete, at MMA Fighting. Everyone's rooting for you. Go get that raw total. And then go get that 1,005-pound deadlift that you've been hunting for. Also, <laughs> get, a, get a bar where when you lift it, the weights don't come crashing off the sides. Uh, okay. That out of the way. Let us get to the questions at hand. Okay. Or the comments, whatever they may be. And there may be many. All right. First question. Let me know if everything sounds correct and sounds good. It should. Let's see. No complaints. Must be okay. All right. Oh, uh, by the way, people were complaining last week. There was like more tech problems. That was on Google's end, not mine. Um, the stream cut out for a while, but my internet test speed was fine and it was Google software. All the other previous times, my fault. That time, no. All right. Doesn't matter. Neither here nor there. Okay. Let's have a good show. Today, first question. With the staff cuts at the UFC, so what will happen to the former fighters collecting a paycheck? Guys like Liddell and Hughes who don't seem to do much behind the scenes. Griffin at least seems involved in the media side. Well, um, in fairness, so is Liddell. And I can tell you that's true because when I went to Vegas for, ooh, what fight was that? 200, UFC 200. Um, I got to interview him for some stuff he was doing. He does a lot of media, 
not so much for um, UFC, but like for example, UFC will have somebody who they're doing stuff with. Let's say I'm, I'm, this wasn't for what this was, but I'm just making this up. Let's just say T-Mobile or uh, you know what is it? What is there? Cricket Wireless, whatever the hell they use. Boost Mobile, what, what, what uh, Metro PCS, whatever it is. <laughs> I just named like five nubs telecom companies. Um, He'll do something with them. He does a lot of that. He does a lot of like brand support outside of typical UFC functions. Although, of course, I think he was just hosting the last season of The Ultimate Fighter, right? So in Latin America. So he does a lot of that. When I interviewed him, it was for um, that show Kingdom. Kingdom was doing some kind of event um, to promote their new season of the show. And he was there, but he was there to promote that. He was there to promote UFC 200. He does that kind of stuff. So at least you can say Griffin and Liddell are out there as like really strong brand ambassadors. I can see them at least deserving of some kind of compensation, obviously. Hughes, I don't know what he does. Um, I mean, I know what his official title is, but I don't know. You know, we all know it's made up, but like, does he do anything? I don't think he does anything. I, I could be wrong about that. I don't... I don't know. I think he's doing some work at UFC 205, by the way. So maybe they'll start doing more. It's not as well to get clear, but I, I actually, it's funny. In anticipation of this chat, before you even asked, um, I was asking around uh, this past week for various folks in the industry, and no one really knows the answer to that. But the general hunch um, from some of the more well-informed ones was that as long as Dana is there, they'll probably still collect a check. Uh, maybe a reduced one. Maybe the same one, but they'll probably still get something once he goes away, if and when that happens. Uh, then the power of the jig is up at that point. So we'll see. But you know, it's interesting that like they were able to get tens of millions of dollars in essential cost savings, as they describe it, by getting rid of you know fifteen percent of their workforce or so. Um, boy, those were some highly paid people they got rid of, huh? That is a tremendous amount of money that they are, if in fact that's what they are doing, is saving. Um, wow. There were some well-paid people at that company, to put it mildly, right? In fact, I was one, I think uh, I was wondering, and then I saw this on other parts of Twitter, some people were like, are they counting like Lorenzo's salary as part of that? Because otherwise, you had some insanely well-compensated people losing their, uh, their jobs. Which so I, I suppose I can understand to some extent. Um, to some extent, I can't. I've been good. This is my first afternoon soda. What's my first soda uh, since Saturday? Not so bad. All right. But um, those pay cuts are incredible, right? Like I was mentioning this before. I don't know to what extent. And I asked Ben Folks this, who did a lot of good reporting on it. He seemed to think it was somewhere in the middle. Are these staff cuts, how much of this and, and, and the breadth and depth of them is enormous, right? They're not getting rid of rank and file. They're getting rid of some rank and file, but a lot of the corporate leadership. Um, to what extent are they trimming the fat off of a bloated bureaucracy? Or to what extent are they removing the essential components of a machine that makes it run? And no one really knows the answer to that. We'll have to see how things play out. But I wonder 
if they had done like 10% cut or less, 7 or 8%, I don't think I'd be feeling this way. But 15% or more is, boy, that is a lot. That is a lot. How much of that can you are you really able, not merely to fill by saying, well, there's corporate redundancy. We have people in-house who can do that, but who can do it the same way, who can do it at the same level, right? Um, it's one thing to say, I can take over someone else's responsibility and basically get by. It's another to say, are you just as good at this? Um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2017 uh, because, again, these cuts happen at every department, uh, advertising, payroll, licensing, merchandise, uh, obviously a bunch of the overseas offices. It's it's a real – it's going to be a real test of their strategy and um, the existing workforce that stayed behind. It's going to be – it's going to be wild. It's going to be wild. Someone noted this just very clearly. Uh, from the MMA Junkie article, quote, an analysis of the business conducted in part by corporate turnaround specialist Alvarez and Marcel identified employee compensation as the biggest area of cost savings. A new group expects a payroll of $55.4 million to be slashed to $27 million, estimating a 44% to 53% reduction. This doesn't look good in terms of fighter compensation. Without wanting to sound overly dramatic, could the sale of UFC be the final nail in the coffin? Fighters are going to be paid less and less without their own in-cage sponsorship. Other promotions are going to look more and more enticing. So a couple of things about that, which I think is a really excellent point that needs to be addressed. Number one, when they're talking about these declines in payroll costs, they're talking about in-house UFC employees, which would not count such as it is UFC fighters. Now, you can then say, well, if they're looking to cut costs with their own payroll, you cannot imagine they're looking to increase costs as it relates to their independent contracting force. Fair enough. Just wanted to be clear that that, call, that drop from 54 to 27 uh, is a function of just the UFC employees, like where you get a business card and you have a desk and maybe you travel for them kind of thing. Um, that's the first part. The second thing I want to say, though, is like it's... Um, no. WME is not looking to come off their pockets to generously give in ways that Zufa didn't. They're, they're not trying to do that at all. In fact, I asked folks, because remember, you look at the reports that MMA Junkie put out, they're great, but they didn't share the documents that they had, been, uh, that they had obtained. And this deck, in other words. Um, and, uh, and I asked them if it was going to release it. They said it was up to legal. So... But my question was, in anywhere in that, I think it was 58 pages, in anywhere in that 58-page deck, was there anything about to what extent money would go to the fighters? Because, for example, forget all this stuff about employee contraction in terms of the workforce. There were some of these escalators where Reebok would pay uh, more, not merely next year, but the year after that, I think from 4 to $8 million. And um, same with EA Sports. There were these escalating financial returns that they were expecting with some of their partners. And I asked him, is anywhere in that deck, is anything itemized for fighter compensation? Anything. And while he couldn't say that it wasn't itemized, nothing was, like in, in, in actuality, right? I mean, they, they might identify these escalating growing numbers that will go from four to eight. And um, maybe, maybe it doesn't list fighters in the deck, but in fact, some of that will go. But certainly in the deck itself, there was nothing mentioning fighters. Nothing. Nothing. It's not even clear the word fighters is, is in there, uh, except maybe as some sort of like uh, irrelevant noun. Um, 
in boilerplate corporate speak. Uh, that's interesting to me. If fighters are going to get more money, and this is something we've known no matter what the regime is, and frankly, this is not exclusive to Zufa. It's not exclusive to WME. It's not exclusive to Roger Goodell and the NFL ownership group. It's not exclusive to Mark Cuban or anyone else. They're just, I mean, there might be a couple of Costco companies out there that really believe in employee compensation um, and providing some degree of quality of life for their labor force. Most companies are simply, even if they're run by competent, frankly, ethical people, they're just not going to go out of their way to uh, encumber their own finances. They're just not going to do it. If the fighters are going to get paid more, it is going to be as a function of making WME pay them more. And those will come with some certain consequences, of course, which we can talk about later in the chat. But um, I never thought it was a real position that WME would be just super willing to just pay money. Maybe they would be less resistant and less hostile to any kind of labor organizing effort maybe maybe we could have considered that possibility although that one even also seems mostly naive at this point as well but um it is going to be through co coercion or negotiation however you want to you know frame that but it will be because they got forced to and no sooner will it happen and no later than that that's that's just the reality of it does not really matter who the ownership group is um, that is the dynamic in play. They've got a great thing going where they've got uh, certainly a lot of debt to finance, but nevertheless, they've got a lot. I mean, they, they bought a $4 billion organization and they intend to make money on it. Uh, and that's a great position to be in. They're not in the business of uh, enhancing their payroll costs if they don't have to. The question is, will they be forced to? That's the question. Okay, RDA versus Tony Ferguson. Look, we are three days away from the epic showdown between these two lightweight contenders in Mexico City, and I'm not exactly sure what the outcome will be. Dos Anjos employs a very traditional and technical style of fighting, while Ferguson is unorthodox and even erratic at times. Despite the fact that their styles are completely different from one another, their skills are equally effective and lethal against high-level opponents. Normally, when you have two elite fighters of equal skill, the match tends to result in a very competitive back-and-forth war, which I expect from this weekend's main event. Question, based on both RDA and Ferguson's respective abilities, who do you predict will emerge victorious at Saturday night? So there's a few components to this I'd like to break down. Number one, are y'all not super pumped for RDA versus Ferguson? What a stellar lightweight fight that should be. Whoa. On paper, you're talking about two elite lightweights. In my judgment, the best weight class in all of mixed martial arts, the only kind where you can go to someone else's lightweight division on remote regions of the earth, and they'll have a couple of guys who you can immediately tell can scrap. Lightweight is just super talent-rich wherever you go, and these two guys are at the top of the food chain globally. Cannot wait to see these two go at it. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say. Number two, uh, in Mexico City, I wonder to what extent elevation is going to affect things. If it's probably going to affect them... Um, you know, I don't know who it would affect more, maybe Dos Anjos, but I don't, because I know uh, Ferguson, I've been trying to get on my show for a long time. He's been hard to reach, uh, not hard, but it's been a little bit difficult to coordinate a good time because uh, he's up in Big Bear and his phone doesn't even work. So, um, so that's been a bit of a challenge, but um, usually I, I have a rule of thumb. Usually if you're heading into a fight and you can't quite tell exactly what's going to happen, 
there's a reason for that. It's because the pieces of the puzzle, they're just hard to predict how they're going to fit together. And what that usually means is it's going to be a chaos. Um, that's that's a, not every time. Sometimes it can be like a 30-second knockout. Sometimes it can be a three-round dull fest. It, it, all possibilities are in play. But generally speaking, when you get two elite guys, especially like you got two elite guys who are really offensively capable, and more than that, you've got a guy in Dos Anjos who creates quick changes in a fight through devastating strikes, right? He lands with extraordinary authority, which causes guys to make changes either immediately or very quickly over time to adjust. So either they get folded with a body kick or they don't like those leg kicks and they start striking a different way. But either way, you get a different fighter pretty quickly within the first or second round at that point. This is going to be a five-round contest. Uh, and then in Ferguson, you just have, have a guy who takes extraordinary risks. Right, he is talented. He is he is technical. He is fundamental. He has a nice long reach. He uses it for the most part, but he takes such tremendous risks with those, and frankly, liberties in some ways that um, you just don't know what's going to happen. To what extent did Alvarez expose some kind of vulnerability? Eves Edwards was on the Monday Morning Analyst. And he was pointing out that the way in which um, Dos Anjos was blocking was conventional. He was never parrying or moving out of the way from strikes on one side. Alvarez recognized that, stepped offside through that right. So instead of coming around the, or instead of coming and being blocked, it came, uh, I think it was on the inside of it or around it, one of the two. But anyway, he just adjusted his position so it would come around uh, and score. And so there's a, there's a sense there of like, so does that mean that the sort of relative basicness of RDA's defense can be exploited by a guy who takes incredible risks for someone at this level of the game. Maybe, maybe it means that the guy who takes risks like that is creating much more openings for someone who is as offensively surgical and powerful as Rafael dos Anjos. Maybe it means that uh, we saw in the Lando Venata fight that uh, someone who can be surgical at times um, can make Ferguson pay, but Ferguson is incredibly resilient. Ferguson has offense from all different kinds of positions. I don't think Ferguson can sub Dos Anjos unless he hurts him first, but he can create scrambles from anywhere. He is an excellent wrestler. Um, he's got all kinds of wild leg lock entries. He's the kind of guy who lot, tries to lock up something where the guy on top is not trying to get out of it and reverse. He's trying to get out of it and get away, right? I mean, this is a this is an incredible fight, a truly, truly incredible fight. And I have to say that if Ferguson can beat RDA, man, boy, Habib better go in there and just walk through Michael Johnson to deserve a title shot. You know what I mean? Um, if this one is close, and I suspect that it will be between RDA and Ferguson, um, even then Habib has his work cut out for him. But, um, you know, Ferguson goes in there and shines. Look out. Look out, man. If you beat, I mean, who has he beaten besides? Everyone sort of talks about the um, Barboza fight, which, of course, was tremendous. Here is the win streak that this dude is on. So he lost to Michael Johnson. Before that, he beat Eves Edwards and Aaron Riley and Ramsey Nijum. And then Brock Jardine before that, by the way. Loses to Michael Johnson fairly one-sidedly. Then goes and beats Mike Rio. Okay. Just absolutely starches Katsunori Kokuno. Then beats Danny Castillo. Barely, but he won. Abel Trujillo, he finishes. Gleason Tebow, he finishes. Josh Thompson, he absolutely controls. Edson Barboza, he submits. And Orlando Venata, he submits. Now, I would say RDA is categorically on a different level than all of those guys. But, uh, okay, Barboza, maybe we could argue about that one. But the rest of them, he's definitely a, a head and shoulders above. Um, 
if you can go, if you can stop that guy, look out, look out, man. That's your guy. That's your top contender. If you can do that, I don't think that's all that likely. What are the odds for that one, by the way? Let's see. Odds for that fight are ooh. Ferguson is a plus one thirty favorite at most places, plus one ten, plus one twenty, and others. It's about right. It's about right. That fight is going to be absolutely tremendous. So you're asking me to pick, forced to make a choice. I'd probably go with RDA, but you know, it's not really who you pick to me. It's well, part okay, it is who you pick, but more than that, it's like what degree of confidence do you have in it? Like, do, what, what what level of what level of percentage chance do you give that kind of outcome i would give it like a 55 percent chance outcome like i definitely think that's the most likely and the likeliest but not by much grappling with huge dudes all right look have you ever been forced to tap out in grappling because your opponent was significantly larger than you and maintained an extended top control to the point where he was crushing your diaphragm and you simply couldn't breathe, or being a big guy yourself, have you ever done that to anyone? I have definitely done that to people, but you don't want to be that kind of person who does that. I have cardio tapped one time in my life. Not proud of it, but it happened, um, ooh, I don't know, three years ago. I was with my wife at Bogota, Colombia, which is higher in elevation than Mexico City. It's more than 8,000 feet in the air. And I just, it was my second day there, and I, I should have waited till I acclimatized a little bit because I was going to be there for two weeks. And I just couldn't get air. I just would, I would suck in air, and I could. It, would, it wouldn't have that satiating feeling that you get if you, right? You take a breath. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it, and I panicked a little bit. It was. It still took me several minutes before I felt like okay again. It was. Uh, it was horrible and embarrassing. And I didn't do it after that. But there was one moment where I was just. I couldn't. I couldn't. And I've rolled in Denver. Even in Denver, I could get air. I could not roll, or I could not, yeah, I couldn't really roll that well in, in, in Bogota. It was just too high in the air. But you're asking about, let's say, sea level. And, you know, a really big dude on top of you um, where you, they're crushing your diaphragm. Let me say something about this. You don't need a super big guy to do that to you, okay? Um, they call it three-point pressure technique. What you basically want is, and there's a, there's ways you can do this. You can work on a medicine ball, which is the way I was taught, but you can do it on like a balance ball, like those ones, like girls, you don't guys use them too, I suppose. Uh, I don't know what they was. They're like, you know, they're like the size of a giant beach ball or something. Um, and what you, ba I learned on a medicine ball. The reason I learned on a medicine ball is because what you, what you basically get trained to do is, and you start out by, you want to put the medicine ball at the point of your chest sort of at the chest line. You ever seen like guys flex and then that line comes across their chest between the upper and lower pec? That's where you basically want to have it right in the center of the middle of them. So if you made a, like a cross this way, that's what you want. And you want it to do it where if you rotate hands behind your back, you're just on the tip of your toes and then your chest, a medicine ball, and then you rotate and you want it to hurt. You know that the very best point where you apply pressure is where it hurts the most on the medicine ball. And then you do the same thing on your ribs. You go in the side there and you want to do it. The guys who get really good at that, dude, they could be 170 pounds and they will make you feel like you are trapped under ice. Damn. You don't see a lot of that MMA because guys underneath are good athletes. They put such a heavy premium on, um, you know, scrambling and getting up and they're good about not getting their guard passed generally. Like it's hard to pass a UFC fighter's guard, generally speaking, right? But, you know, if you've been training, let's say you do like a, some classes have what's called a marathon rule where you show up on a Friday night, let's say, 
seven to eight o'clock and all you do is roll right 45 minutes in man like you just don't have the same kind of energy left and if there's a huge weight disparity that's another part about ufc there's not going to be an incredible weight disparity between you and your opponent but you know if you're rolling in class or you do an absolute tournament and it's your fifth match of the day or something and you get some guy on top of you who not only is not necessarily huge but like big enough and much more importantly they have mastered three-point pressure technique it is horrible it is absolutely horrible i had a guy do it to me once who uh, a black belt uh out in woodbridge virginia and oh god it was a nightmare it was a nightmare he did just enough to hang on just enough to hang on um but it's it's it size obviously is correlated but if you get a really big guy who's not good at three-point pressure technique it's not it's hard to maneuver around their weight of course but if you get a medium-sized guy who's really good at three-point pressure technique it's 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 a horror show it's a horror show it feels so terrible all right if a blue belt attempted a knee bar would you be pissed no uh okay fantasy matchups all right there we are oops fantasy matchups conor mcgregor versus neil magny i think neil's just a little too big Holly Holm versus Cyborg. Cyborg. Dominic Cruz versus Jose Aldo. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'll go Aldo. Eddie Alvarez versus Nate Diaz. Alvarez. Gunnar Nelson versus Cowboy Cerrone. Cerrone. Daniel Cormier versus Fabricio Verdum. I would go... Ooh. Hmm. I would go Cormier. Steve Miocic versus John Jones. Let's see how John looks back when he comes back, but I'm leaning Jones, but maybe Steve is that guy. You want to get Jacek versus Kat Zingano. Zingano's too big. Conor McGregor versus Tony Ferguson. We'll see. We'll see. Probably Tony, but we'll see. Duho Choi versus John Lineker. Probably Choi, but Lineker... <laughs> Lineker's gonna Lineker's gonna catch some bodies of some guys much bigger than him before uh, his days in UFC are up. Uh, that of that I am sure. Someone says Yanjechik versus Ngana was the weirdest matchup I've ever heard of. She's just too big. She's just too big. Should be able to eat. I mean, look at like what Gadelia is able to do to her early. Right now, we also Yanjechik was able to get off the map. I'm just sort of pointing out like the ability to wrap up take down and be on top i mean magnified by someone who is significantly bigger it just wouldn't go all that well lorenz larkin and the porn stars did you see larkin's video where he trains the porn stars i did not how bad was the rear naked choke sequence i can only imagine do you think that neil magny should take them up on their offer for coffee. <laughs> uh, sure, I'd get coffee with porn stars. Who wouldn't? Maybe some people. True, false. RDA versus Ferguson will be an absolute barn burner, and it will likely result in one of them getting brutally finished. I will say true. The power in Eddie Alvarez's hands is, a, is more of a threat to McGregor than his wrestling. False. The wrestling is for sure the biggest threat, relative to his power anyway. 
Fighters should stop taking PEDs if a failed drug test resulted in the forfeiture of a percentage of their purse. Excuse me. Fighters would stop taking PEDs. False. Considering all the time Anthony Pettis has been sidelined from injuries, it'll be miraculous if he can fight for a fourth time in 2016. Jeez, is that what we're up against? Especially after getting his cars torched? Damn, that's a great point. He fought Eddie Alvarez in January. Edson Barboza in April. Lost both of those. Alvarez one's debatable. Then he goes and beats Oliveira in August. Man, that's a great point. I hadn't even considered that. Wow. That'd be a little bit redemptive for him. Yeah, he'd be 2-2 two and two if he won, but that's a nice 2-2, two and two, man. He fought four murderers, too. Health-wise, getting TKO'd with multiple punches is worse than getting knocked out with one big punch. I don't think they're all alike, but probably. Yeah, probably. But all these situations are different. Given his harsh insults towards Reebok, Verdum should have expected the harsh punishment he received. You know, the interesting part about that is the answer is yes, right? Like if and he did, he says he didn't even have a contract with UFC for the for his commentating duties. It was merely, you know, they would call him up and he would just go do it, and they would pay him whatever the. I guess verbally agreed to some is. So look, if you go out there and um, you say stuff like that, UFC's got to protect their partner, and that's just what's going to happen. Okay. Um, in defending Verdum, I think we have to acknowledge that that's just the reality of things. Um, but the other component here is the bigger picture, which is namely number one. We are how long into this deal, and you've got elite fighters who still are deeply unhappy with it to the point where they are sabotaging uh, auxiliary jobs they do for the Ultimate Fighting Championship because what has happened to them is so outrageous. We can't forget about that. That's what elite fighters are doing still. Still. Still doing that. Um. That's not something the UFC is in a position to say, well, we'll just let fighters get away with it. Okay, they've got a job to do. But if I'm Reebok, I'm taking a nice long look in the mirror and saying, wow, um, the toxicity of this may have died down past its peak, but there is still lingering resentment towards them. And that manifests itself still um, quite prominently, quite publicly with very public figures, right? I mean, Verdum is about to fight Cain Velasquez, and the winner of that, I'm guessing, is going to get a title shot. Maybe the person there, including Verdum, could be heavyweight champion again. That's not an insignificant figure on the payroll. That's that's a top-level guy. Uh, and he's going out there and telling Reebok to perform sexual acts on him. That is uh, uh, interesting to me, that there is still that kind of disregard for the brand and that kind of lingering unhappiness. Reebok has uh, in no way ameliorated um, the festering um, dislike towards them, either for the way in which they were introduced into the sport, either for the program itself, either for, frankly, the clothes not being all that great, um, there's still a lot of that. And by the way, they put out this like line, this Reebok line for New York City. I'm like, I don't know how you guys feel. I'm tired of bashing Reebok. Like, I don't feel good about it. I never felt good about it, but I'm now I'm at the point where I'm like, it's an exhausting exercise. But if we're just speaking honestly, who is the audience for that? 
maybe I don't quite understand the economics here of what it costs to produce those kinds of things versus how much they'll make versus how much they'll sell. And there is a there is a there is a process here by which they'll get a return on their investment and burnish their brand such that okay it, it all works out in the end. But I don't understand um, who if you're gonna buy a leather jacket, why would you buy a Reebok leather jacket? I don't. I, j I just I don't. That one doesn't quite compute for me. And the other stuff is not that it looks all that awesome. It looks like something Taylor Swift would wear if she saw the movie The Warriors and wanted some kind of of that aesthetic incorporated into one of her own music videos. It doesn't even feel all that authentic to begin with or original or frankly just interesting. Um, you know, it's it's New York grunge meets Gangnam style or something. It's this bizarre mix. Uh, anyway, and the other point about this that Verdum brought up that I think should also be recognized is, look, man, like if you're going to say stuff like that, there are consequences, of course, you know, either predictable or understandable or both. But he is right when he says he went out there and was promoting that brand in Spanish-speaking Latin America. He went all over that continent. I personally was there and saw him with my own eyes on Caracola, a, a channel, a, a major channel in Colombia, out there doing promos with Freddie Serrano and talking about everything. I saw it with my own eyes, man. And um, and I don't know to what extent he had an arrangement for that. I don't know to what extent he got paid for that. If he's like any other fighter, it probably was very little. But he was a guy who was he's trilingual, and he's really good in Spanish. And then when he went out there and promoted that brand, no problem. And uh, maybe maybe the commentary gigs were a reward for that. But my, my thought is that at the time, he was the most prominent guy who spoke the best Spanish on the roster to this day, and certainly back then, better than Cain Velasquez. Uh, and seemed to have like this, like, he's great on TV too, right? Like, Verdum's a jokester. You know, he did all that for probably not a lot of money, if any. And um, all that didn't mean a whole lot to them in the end. So I understand his point too, that like, you know, Maybe you can't be saying stuff like that, but that's not the only factor in play here. Uh, okay. The fact that Pettis versus Holloway was made indicates that Jose Aldo won't be returning to the cage anytime soon. I would think the opposite. I would think that the winner of that would be, I mean, maybe he only wants a McGregor fight. Maybe he'll only take a McGregor fight. But I think we should just stop thinking about that for a second. And I don't know what the long-term answer is, but the short-term answer is, Let's just keep moving the division of featherweight forward, shall we? Let's keep having contenders win. Let's keep having contenders rise up the queue and other ones fall. Let's keep sorting this out, and eventually one of these guys is going to defend one of these titles one of these days. Well, that sounds very imprecise and maybe even unhelpful, but I don't know what a better answer is. Let's just keep putting guys up there who deserve shots, and you just never know what might happen. Maybe one of these guys will just relent. Max Holloway, if he beats Anthony Pettis, how on earth do you deny that guy? And if Pettis wins and beats a guy like Max Holloway, who had previous business with Jose Aldo, maybe that'll be just the kind of thing to get Jose Aldo to reconsider. You don't know. Or maybe that'll be the thing that brings McGregor back. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, or maybe none of that works, and we have to strip Aldo of his interim championship, and we give it to the winner of that fight. I don't know. But let's just keep moving it forward. Everyone's sort of worried about which each guy's going to do and then questioning the validity of these fights feels to me like um, 
quite the backwards exercise. Let's be excited about those fights. And once they move up, we will figure out something for them to do. And maybe in the interim, that makes the division less what it could be. And in some ways, it already is less than what it could be. But that's not a reason to stop. None of that is a reason to stop pushing guys up the queue and figuring out what to do with them once they get to the very, very peak of it. Um, RDA will be less effective as a fighter now that he's parted ways with King's MMA. Probably true, but we'll see. It's strange that Mark Hunt wasn't bitching this much when Bigfoot and Frank Mir tested positive after he fought them. Is it strange? I'll say false, but it is noteworthy. It's not strange necessarily, but there's something to be said for it. Not, not that it was strange, but that it is... There's a reason why he probably said something this time and not those times. It's a bit puzzling that Kayla Harrison signed with World Series of Fighting considering it's currently in a state of financial crisis, uh, chaos and they have no women's divisions. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what... I don't know what they're doing. Uh, listening to Tito Ortiz speak is slightly worse than listening to Face the Pain. No. I listen to Tito speak all day. Soraldo Babalu, the best light heavyweight of the night. Are you kidding me? I play that on repeat. I don't play, you know, can you step to this on repeat? Face the face the pain is is um you know uh I don't know, I don't know what to say. Uh it's the I mean you know it's it's uh it's a it's the equivalent of a, of of your of watching your family die in a house fire. Right? I mean you know, is listening to Tito Ortiz speak slightly worse than watching your family die in a house fire? I don't think so. All right. Rhonda on leaving MMA. I'm starting to wonder if this fight is a good idea for her. If this is where her head is at. I'm not sure how this will affect the casual fans, but her comments have killed my interest in her return. Really? Should she have made these comments, or how do they affect your perception of how she will perform? Well, man, those comments raise a ton of questions. A ton, 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 ton. A metric ton. A uh, a ton. A, a, a lot. A lot. Um, okay, so let's get into this. So the first part of your question basically deals with, like, you know, where's her head at? She clearly is looking at, I mean, she is matter-of-factly, not literally, but matter-of-factly looking at the exit. She wants out. She wants out. She, and, and I don't really begrudge her that, to be honest. I, I think it's basically fine. Uh, she got in. She got really famous. She got rich. And now she doesn't want to do that anymore. And that is, there's nothing wrong with that, man. That's a, you've won if you can do that. You, you mean to tell me you got into MMA? Okay, you had you got knocked around a little bit, but basically... People were calling you a once-in-a-lifetime, once-ever athlete. You got all kinds of sponsorships. You're in movies. You're in Bud Light commercials. You have millions upon millions upon millions in the bank and fans, and you can just not work ever for the rest of your life. <laughs> I mean, I can completely understand why she wouldn't want to do that anymore. You know, she's—I get a little bit of a vibe from her that she's got a little bit of "I'm going to take my ball and go home," but. You know, she's earned the right to take her ball and go home. That's, that's, you know, you've done that much. What are you really supposed to say about it? Um, 
she doesn't love competition, I don't think. I mean, I think she doesn't mind it in in certain ways, but she's at a point in her life, I feel like, where she just, you know, Dan Henderson only stopped because he basically knew he had to. There, there was just a time to call the quits. The guy was nearly 50. I mean, this is a guy who absolutely loves competing. Look at Daniel Cormier. You know, he got started much later, but he's almost 40. He just loves, he'll tell you if you ask him, loves, loves, loves to compete. And I think Rousey does too. I don't think she hates competing. It's not an either or, but I don't think she loves competition in the same way like this. When she was first getting into MMA, I think she had a lot to prove. and Maybe she wanted to make some money and she didn't know what she was going to do. And then things took off. And then when it was easy, she liked it. It turned difficult and she doesn't like it anymore. And you can say, oh, well, that's a character flaw. And maybe it is. But because of the enormity of her success, it's a character flaw she's allowed to indulge without a whole lot of pushback, to be honest. I wish she would stay, but if she doesn't want to, she absolutely more than a million times has earned that right to say, yeah, I've had enough and I can quit on my terms. And whether you like my terms or not, go pound sand. Okay, fair enough. Um, now, in terms of where her head is at, yeah, man. I mean, how is that not an open question? If you're out there saying, well, I mean, you got some guys who won't reveal their retirement until after a fight. Uh, because they just don't want to make it a part of their camp. They don't want to make have that energy around them. They don't want to have to field the questions. I don't know if this was a strategic mistake on her part. Um, maybe she feels like it's not something she really will have to worry about too much. I guess we'll see how this goes. Again, I really feel like the extent to which she talks to people like indigenous MMA media will say a lot. I really wonder to what extent she'll be removed from that process because I don't think she likes us very much for whatever reasons that she may have. And I don't think that she uh, wants to be asked these things. I don't think she thinks she has to answer for them. In some ways she doesn't, but that doesn't mean the questions go away or that the questions themselves are somehow um, inappropriate. But if you've got one foot out the door, it's, it's a red flag to me. The fact is, though, that like even with one foot out the door or one foot in the door, depending on you know one's vantage point of um, this particular situation, She's still good enough to beat most of these women, right? At least in theory, anyway. So I don't think it's a good sign. It's definitely the sign that she needs to get out sooner rather than later, but it's not a sign that impending doom awaits her. It could be that case. It's not matter of fact that it is that case, right? It's not like she didn't go there and say, I'm just taking this fight because I just want one big paycheck and I'm not really going to train for this. I would be like, mm, that's a little... <laughs> That'd be a little problematic, but to the extent that she ch change uh, trains and um, you know gets up there and still has enough competitive fire to want to give it to somebody, I think she can still, especially as someone like Amanda Nunes, who is very skilled, but might have some deficiencies that Rousey can exploit. But it is definitely it is definitely bad. And if she gets out there, and I definitely feel like if she gets smoked by Amanda Nunes, then it's a wrap. That's a complete wrap on her career. She just doesn't want to do that anymore. People have asked, like, to what extent would losing and then not only not really losing, but then not even competing anymore have on her acting career? I don't know. On the one hand, I definitely feel like it would have an effect. On the other hand, you know, hasn't she made enough money to just go do other things if that falls through too? Like, I don't think she's going to be poor again unless she just makes profound financial mistakes. But um yeah uh people are like well her acting roles were dry up okay well she can go cry into the bags of money she has in the vault scrooge mcduck style and i think she'll be okay right so 
Uh, maybe she won't be quite the celebrated figure that she once was, but if she is at all intelligent with her money, she should be fine for the rest of her life. So there's that. Um, will this kill interest in her return? I don't think so. I, I, I mean, maybe this is not the best way to promote her return, but it's the return of Ronda Rousey. The stakes could not be bigger. The questions could not be of more import. Um, the scope of it all, what it would mean, what it would say is extraordinary. You will watch this. You and I will definitely watch this, but there's definitely going to be casual fans who are like, I want to see if Ronda still got it. But I think Ronda's also smart enough to know that if she loses and or loses and gets starched by Amanda Nunes, the interest in her will be like the shooting star that went like that, you know. Um, you know, she a really good actress, as Dana White told TMZ. I didn't see evidence of that, but maybe that doesn't matter. Neither was Gina Carano, and she's still getting some, some roles. Hey, Gina Carano was in Deadpool. It's not that's not nothing. Or if you were in Deadpool, if your best friend was in Deadpool, you'd be all you'd be sized for it. But um the other thing we have to think about is like how many does she have left? I'm thinking two at most three. I can't imagine it's much more than that, right? And if that's the case, uh, that's assuming she wins. If that's the case, who does she face next? I really I don't see any momentum for this cyborg fight. I mean, maybe if Rousey beats Nunez, no problem. And they give her a home rematch and she wins that no problem or a Tate rematch and she wins that no problem. Maybe she'll have enough competitive fire to say, I'll give it one go or about for Cyborg. But I don't feel like Rousey is the kind of person who looks around and says, I owe somebody something. Right? I don't think she looks at MMA and thinks like, I owe the sport anything. I owe Cyborg this fight. I owe the fans this fight. I owe my fans this fight. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't mean to say she's like intensely selfish, but I don't. I don't get the vibe that she thinks about um, what the greater good or the greater need or a greater want might even be. I think she thinks about it as like what would be, you know, pleasing generally and then really good for her, which again is absolutely her right. Um, and I think all of the damage done by the lunatic cyborg truthers thinking that she could make 135 in any kind of a healthy or productive way probably, I mean, we'll see what happens. Maybe they can make a cyborg fight because the money is just too big and the size and scope of it and the, the, the you know, sort of historic uh, nature of it all is too much to pass up. But my guess is that ship has sailed and the donks who were insistent, despite all available evidence uh, that she could or should do it, are not totally, but uh, are partly to blame here. see tj versus lineker how do you not love that fight since this seems to be happening who do you favor i favor tj but we'll see also assuming that this is a three-round fight is that enough time for tj to get the finish yes it is i think tj is hard to hurt and i think he's really good at uh being accurate and um for the most part getting out of the way and i think lineker is going to be fast but i don't think it's gonna be anything that Dillashaw is not prepared for. Also, Dillashaw will just be bigger. Next for Jacare. Now that Ronaldo Souza's fight with Rockhold has been canceled, where does he go from here? He's beaten a lot of top 10 dominantly, Musasi, Belfort, Brunson. And despite Bisping's recent comments, I'm sure the count still needs more recovery time. Is Whitaker the only fight to make for him since waiting will likely kill his title hopes? Boy, I, I love Bisping, but this... 
this injury is uh, not good for him, right? He's like, oh, everyone else is injured. Well, not anymore. And, you know, you're trying to fight a guy who never fought a middleweight, who frankly avoided middleweight at all possible cost. Uh, you know, they, I'm assuming they could, if they can make GSP versus Bisping, it's not exactly clear why logistically anyway. They can't make Jacare, but of course we all know what the situation there is. I think GSP is a more manageable challenge for any kind of middleweight, and there's more money to be made there. So, so there's your answer. But some of the arguments used to justify it now uh, are backfiring. But okay. Um, it's a tough fight, man. It's a tough situation. If you're Jacare and you have to fight one more time. And you don't like desperately need the money. You just have to wait. You just have to wait. Maybe you get. Jeez, oh, he's already beaten Musasi, as you noted. So filling in for you know taking away Uriah Hall and giving him that fight wouldn't make sense. It, there's just nothing for him else to do um, except fight Luke Rockhold, or in something happens to Weidman or Romero, fill in there. Um. I frankly wouldn't mind seeing a Romero versus Jacare rematch if it came to that. Obviously, I hope that it doesn't, but you never know. But this is the problem with guys who are in these like really advanced positions. They have everything to lose by taking something that's not directly in the path of a title. And when that thing that is directly in the path of a title that they need goes away, it leaves them in a state of limbo that is uh, unfortunate, to, to say the least. So if I was him... I think he's doing the right thing. Taking some kind of risky fight against somebody else last minute, not a good idea. Let's see how long Rockhold is out. Make that fight again. You beat him, you know, and we'll see what happens. But it's you, you got to feel bad for Jacare, right? I mean, a guy who has, you know, not getting any younger and has become such an accomplished MMA fighter from his days in BJJ who easily could be wearing that crown. What's he supposed to do? I don't know. I don't know what the answer there is, except to just wait. If there was another clear path he could take, sure, take it. But it doesn't make sense for him. Someone says GSP versus Jacare. <laughs> and then someone else responds, Are you high? Yes, are you? All right. Halloween. What were you and your wife's costumes for Halloween, Luke? I didn't have one. My wife went as like one of those people who dress up in El Dia de los Muertos, right? Uh, also, I saw the pictures of Barbas, who was Yoda. Uh, why are there no pictures of your other dog dressed up? In fact, why are there no other pictures of the other dog, period? The reason why is because my other dog is a normal-sized dog who gets skittish about being picked up. She's easy to photograph for the most part, but like Barbara's, I can just pick up like a coffee mug or something, you know. Lola, the other one, it's a little bit more difficult. Has anyone told you that you look and sound like actor Danny McBride? To which someone responds, Luke looks nothing like Danny McBride. That's true. However, my fraternity brothers, to the extent I still see them, which is once every five years, last time I saw them, they told me that my attitude reminded them of Kenny Powers. Because I go in there and tell everyone to F off uh, and get out of my face. And I'm effing in and you're effing out. But that's about it. Uh, if Demi and Maya and Habib Nurmagomedov were the same size, who would win in a fight between them? Ooh. That is interesting. 
Someone says, size changes everything. The question is pointless because both body shape and size determine style on the mat. The differences might be small, but at the highest level, these are monumental shifts. Both are good at the ground game. Just leave it at that. That's true. Like your your size and your body shape and the things you like to do will heavily determine how you play. You don't see a lot of guys like uh, who's the Dominican black belt. Um, oh, what's his name? He's always competing. Um, Abraham. What is his name? Abraham Marte. Abraham Marte, he plays a small man's jiu-jitsu game, right? He does barambolos and does a lot of guard play, does a lot of half guard play. He's not one of these like heavyweight guys who just wants to get on top, you know? Um, and he does a lot of inverting, right? So, but that's that's rare. Like based on your size, you'll just do, you know, you look at the game of Gianni Grippo. Um you know, I don't say I don't think Gianni Grippo and Abraham Marte's games are identical, but Gianni Grippo and Abraham Marte are more related than let's say Gianni Grippo and um, I don't know, uh, let's say uh, Bouchesha. I mean, Bouchesha is pretty active too, but even he, you know, much more competitively of a top player or something like that, right? So that's true for sure. Someone says it'd be fun to watch. Habib is a big 155, and the size would not be that much of at all of a difference, in my opinion. It would be a significant difference. I've seen Demi and Maya in person. I've not seen Habib, but I've seen Demi and Maya, and he is way bigger than you think he is. Way, way bigger. Remember, he has to like be very disciplined about getting to welterweight, but he was a just fine-sized middleweight. Do not forget that. He's much bigger than you think he is. Look, if this is one of Rousey's last fights against Amanda Nunes, should her very last fight be Cyborg or Holly Holm if you had to choose and why? I would choose Cyborg, um, but I wouldn't be upset with Holly Holm if they did it. it was, this is a really weird thing. Is she really going to... Let's say she beats Amanda Nunes and she only has one or two more. Is she not going to fight Holly Holm again? That would be kind of weird, right? Like, there has to be some kind of a rematch there, right? I don't... I don't know, but if you're not going to do that, why not fight Cyborg? Just to fight someone that's got like a tough challenge, man. Like, do you really want to see another Tate fight? I mean, I think it would sell, but I don't know that how much I really want to see that, especially now that she lost her title. If she'd had the title, it would have been made more sense, but I don't know what they're going to do. And do, do you really want to see, like, what do you care more about, Rousey versus Holm 2 or Rousey versus Shevchenko? Um, you know, I'm the kind of guy who believes in awarding contenders more often than not, but if Rousey is going to be exiting, and we know she's going to be exiting, there's something to be said for some closing some of those what appear to me open chapters in her life, um, at least in her career, her professional career. I, I would anticipate those would need to be closed, but if she wins the title, I don't know how you do that. To me, it, you could have made Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey right away, um, both coming off of losses. Three in a row would be bad for for. Holly, uh, or I guess at this point it would be, well, I guess you could have done off the Shevchenko fight. Yeah, you still could have done it. Yeah, it would be bad for her, right? But um, she would still be popular. It would still be a huge fight. Maybe she would win again. You know, I, I don't know. You could have done it. I mean, but once you give her the title, then you have these weird questions about who gets it next. You could do Ju Juliana Pena, I guess. Um, but let's say Juliana Pena goes in there and absolutely smashes her, physically abuses her. 
and then that's it. You never got the cyborg fight. You never got another Tate fight. You never got another home fight. They're gonna ha- they're gonna have to be very de- de- you know delicate about this because this is not an easy road to manage by any stretch of the imagination. So it says, of course, it would be cyborg. Everyone wants to see that fight. I don't think Rousey wants to see that fight. Someone says, I don't think that's what everyone wants to see. I think Rousey wants revenge on home more than she wants Cyborg. There's that as well. Luke, what is your worst or most funny story that happened during the Marines? This includes hazing, jokes, or just plain effery. Oh, God, I got a lot of them. Here's a good one. When I was at boot camp, this was 1998, and I even hesitate to say this because... You know, the Marines have gone through a bit of a tough time with um, the way recruits are being treated at Paris Island, but this one seems to be uh, unethical but above board. Anyway, we had this guy in our platoon named um, um, uh, Arias Mucha. And um, I don't know what the rules are now, but there were no computers to use. Of course, anything you uh, sent or received had to be handwritten, and you didn't get a chance to send very much. And I, I, I didn't know a lot of guys. I got a whole lot. You're there for 13 weeks. But um, if you did send anything out, like th- when you go there, you give them everything and they give you any everything. In other words, like y- y- if you have a pen, it's because you have a Paris Island pen. If you have a piece of paper, it's got Paris Island letterhead on it. And if you have an envelope, same thing, right? And I remember he was getting mail that had Paris Island letterhead on it and Paris Island envelopes on it. And it turned out his sister was there at the same time. <laughs> anyway, uh, the the... Recruits are segregated by gender. Uh, I don't know how it is anymore, but back then you saw them for maybe one day in the corner of your eye. Like you never saw the women. It was it was completely segregated training. And uh, I remember one time we had to do the repelling course, and they for some reason they did it with the women that day, but they put them like you know even still kind of separated. But they figured out that his sister was there at the same time as him. And Arias Mucha was a dumbass. Like he was just a stupid person. I don't know how else to say it. Like he was a he ended up being like a really good recruit. Like when he when he showed up, he was doing eight pull-ups, and he used to get thrashed physically so often that by the time he left, he did something like eighteen pull-ups. Like my man got buff, getting murdered for being an idiot. Um, and I remember they figured out, oh my God, Arias Mucha, is that your sister? So they called, uh, they called his sister over, and they started thrashing him like you know, uh, get up, get down, get up, get down, get up, get down, sit up, sit back, sit up, sit back, sit up, sit back, drink this water, sit up, sit back. To the point where, uh, like, he's just like physically exhausted. He can barely move, and they're still going. They're still just, you know, he's covered in dirt, and there's like, you know, mud all over his face. Like, you ever seen the officer or gentleman kind of thing where he's like putting the water in his <laughs> in his face? He's like, "What you gonna do about it, mayonnaise?" You know, Richard Gere's like, "I got nowhere else to go." It's like one of those kinds of things. And his sister starts crying. Okay, she's a recruit. She starts crying watching her brother get thrashed like this and then all the drill instructors did that fake maniacal gargamel catching the smurfs kind of laugh like in your face like do you like watching that do you like you know all this stuff like taunting her in this incredible moment of vulnerability and i just remember thinking that is one of the most sadistic things i think i've ever seen uh but you know what? He made it through boot camp, and so did she. I remember graduation day. There they were. I think even um, she may have been like a star in her platoon. So, like, in the end, it didn't matter so much. But Arias Mucha, 
Arya's Mujena's sister, man. I'll never forget the day she just was bawling watching her brother get torched for nothing, for no reason. Mayonnaise. All right, there we go. Woodley and his roundabout call out of Connor. Can the dude be any more transparent? At this rate, we might as well scrap the rankings in three divisions. And if Cruz gets his way, maybe four. How far must this go into the failed boxing model before it becomes unpalatable for the hardest hardcore fans of the sport? Well, there's not a lot of like worry about that happening. In fact, I asked him about this. I was like, all right, man. He was, he was on my show. I go, all right, man. You put off this fight so you could have because you wanted the Diaz fight and then you relented and now you got this fight. Why did you relent? I don't understand. And his answer was, I relented because of where they put this fight in terms of their calendar, right? I'm a champion, and uh, I get extra money being a champion. I don't know if he gets pay-per-view points or his salary goes up or something, but uh, or his purse, that's salary, whatever. They put it on a Connor card. So he was like, they put me on a card with the biggest star in the sport. Like, that's... I wanted big money fights. Now it's a big money fight was basically his answer. Now, to what extent it becomes a bigger money fight? I don't know. I don't know. But there you go. That was his answer. Um, that seems a, like a reasonable response. It's still a little weird to be like, I'm not fighting this guy. And then all of a sudden you're fighting the guy. But if that's the case, if he's getting paid because of the nature of uh, who's on the uh, who's on the card... Okay, I mean, okay, I guess it worked out, you know. But, I mean, I, I'm with you on the McGregor thing, but, like, well, he even said he shouldn't go to welterweight, but, you know, everyone, their brother calling out McGregor is getting a little old. Not sure what the big deal is about Rousey's impending retirement, really. She said quite a while ago that she didn't want to compete past 30. Look forward to your thoughts. Uh, let me explain to you how many 20-year-olds think that they want to be done doing something by the age of 30. That, that once they turn 30, they have to enter this new chapter of their life where things all of a sudden have to slow down and take on more, you know, the gravitas of it all has to be weighed in these incredibly deliberate ways. You know, um, that's just that's just 20-nothing-year-old 20, 20 delusion is what that is. Now, look, in the end, it may hold up in this case because she has the financial options to give the finger and walk. But things you say in your 20s, they're mostly garbage, just so you know. Like, they mostly don't mean anything. Oh, I want to be, you know, I want to have this much in the bank by 30. Good luck. <laughs> Hope you got it. Uh, and, and, of course, a small percentage will, of course, get there, or they'll still be interested in the same things. Or I have a rule, man. If you're a young man, I can't speak for the women out there. Maybe this is a rule that should apply to them. Maybe it's not. If you're a young guy, do not get married before the age of 30 because you don't know who you are yet, with very limited exception. You'll make incredibly bad choices about your life. Trust me on that. So, you know, oh, I'm, I, you know, I don't want to be doing this past 30. A lot. I mean, 20 year old telling me they don't want to do something past 30 unless it's like time in jail, I don't really take seriously. And more than that, like, who knows how people's priorities change over over time who knows what kind of things could drag things out more by the way i wouldn't discount the possibility of rousey being something like a um brock lesnar figure where she goes and does professional wrestling and then occasionally comes over and fights for the ufc for a big fat paycheck if she's that far ahead of the game and there's the right kind of matchup who's to say that wouldn't work or that the various parties wouldn't be interested you know all, all those things seem like plausible options to me 
Connor and the wrestler question. I feel like he's avoided this in his entire career. His only fight against a wrestler was against Chad Mendez, and the guy was out of fight shape. He looked bad from the two-minute mark. That said, Mendez won nearly two full rounds fighting on fumes. Why is nobody talking about this as a significant problem versus Alvarez? Does all the flair and trash talk blind people to truths about fighting in MMA? Well, the last part is true, that flair and trash talk do blind people to truths about fighting in MMA. But there's a couple of countervailing factors there that you have to consider. One, yes, Mendez was coming in on late notice, but Mendez doesn't... Um, I thought Eves Edwards made a great point. Like once Mendez gets you down, he like wants to really keep you sort of hips locked under him, squared up on you. You know, Alvarez is not that kind of guy. You can you can move around on Alvarez, and he doesn't really care a whole lot. So there's that. Um, two, um, McGregor went into that fight injured on late notice. We've seen elite fighters get an opponent change at the last minute and not look like themselves. I think there's also part of that. Plus, you add in the fact that I heard his ACL was hanging on by a thread, and um, or maybe it was his MCL, but certainly he had some kind of uh, you know damage to the structural integrity of his knee that um, he was able to overcome in that fight. So, like the the injury thing kind of went a little bit both ways. But like, okay, fundamentally, who is the better wrestler? Eddie Alvarez is the better wrestler. Who's the bigger wrestler? Eddie Alvarez is the bigger wrestler. Who's better? Eddie's offensive wrestling or Connor's defensive wrestling, which is the bigger question here. Uh, Eddie's is. So, like, do I think that that is worth taking into consideration? Sure. The question is to what extent he wants to use it. Chad Mendez, you know, is going to shoot doubles. He's just not going to bang it out with you forever. He kind of did for a little bit with Jose Aldo, but that's only because Aldo's takedown defense is just insane. And trying to hold him down is very difficult to do. Um, Conor McGregor doesn't have Jose Aldo takedown defense, just doesn't, you know, not even close, but, um, is Eddie Alvarez going to be as hungry for that level change as Chad Mendez? I don't know. I think he should be to an extent, maybe not quite as much, but it should be a very forward, potent, early, often component of his offense, but. I don't know what they're going to do. A lot of times it's like, oh, well, Eddie has great wrestling or X has great wrestling and Y has bad takedown defense. So what, man? I've been in this game long enough where you'd be like, this guy clearly could have done something with this and never did. And you just can't figure out why. And they lose. And then people just move on because there's other contenders in the queue. Like trying to be trying to predict a fight based on what their abilities are is merely one consideration among many that you have to take into account what they like to do, what they will do, what they could be baited into doing. Maybe they even say in their mind before the fight, aha, I'm going to shoot. Then they get out there and they just change their mind. This happens all the time, even at elite levels. Um, you get really, you got fighters who are really disciplined and stick to a game plan and they're very technical, you know? But then even the elite ones just kind of go out there and say, yeah, I'm just going to do what I feel like. And then they get, you know, sometimes they win and sometimes they just get stretched. Davis McGeary. Baltimore 163. Uh, who do you think wins that fight and why? You have to feel like Davis is the prohibitive favorite there. But I just wonder if we just don't know Liam McGeary well enough or take into consideration his skills enough. Like, okay, Emmanuel Newton passed his guard, but, and certainly Davis is better than Emmanuel Newton. Like, you have every reason to think that this is Davis's fight to lose. And 
that McGeary's body type, where he's super long, and willingness to use that length as a guard player will hurt him. So I think the smart money's on Davis. But I have this nagging feeling that McGeary is just a little bit better than we're giving him credit. And I don't know in what way he'll show that, maybe by being an explosive, reactive striker. Davis shoots in, he eats a knee, and that's that's the show. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe he'll submit him off of his back. Maybe he'll, you know, show better takedown defense. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to say about it. Or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll, he is who we think he is. But I've just got this feeling that, like, McGeary is actually a really talented light heavyweight. The best one on earth? No, I don't think so. But um, slightly better than we give him credit for. We'll see. Friday's, Friday's interesting, man. There's some really good fights on that Bellator card. And Paul Daly's back. And... Uh, Tyrell Fortune's going to make his MMA debut, and then you've got Ed Ruth also in that prelim card. Like, I'm looking forward to that. I really am. Like, I'm happy that we've had this break. I'm happy that we've had a chance to collect ourselves. My brother got married last weekend. You know, I, I was able to live life a little bit, but I'm ready. I'm ready to get back. And I know we've got cards from now until Christmas Eve, right? But I, I don't know how you guys feel. I have really enjoyed this break. And I'm a guy who does radio five days a week. Let me tell you, it's hard to come up with topics five days a week um, in that kind of a climate. But we have managed to do it, and 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 I and that's fine. But haven't y'all enjoyed living life a little bit? And now I'm like, I can't wait for Friday. And I really can't wait for Saturday, you know? That's how I feel now. Like, I'm aching to watch fights, and I'm, and I feel like that ache is what makes the fights so much more rewarding when they're here, especially when the fights can stay together and the cards can be a little bit stacked. And, you know, you get just 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 to hit a few of the right ingredients and, and things can be so fun and so special. Uh, Tough 24 is back, baby. How stoked are you that the drought is over and we get to see that in the semis? There you go. Toronto card. What's up, Luke? Why is this Toronto card a pay-per-view event? Card is weak. Now that GSP is not going to be on that card, how can they make that card better, in your opinion, to justify the $59.99, right? This is a common question. Like, okay, if the quality is noticeably less, then uh, why can't they charge less? Well, the reason why is because um, once you start charging less, you are signaling to the consumer that, yeah, this is lesser quality. That you keep the prices consistent because even though the quality will, in fact, vary, you don't want to tip your hand to the consumer in that way. You want to at least put on the illusion, the the polite fiction that uh, they're all, you know, not not the same quality necessarily, but you know, they all reach a certain threshold of minimum standards. Um, and if you change that, you, you know, maybe you'd make more, but you would create a Pandora's box problem of then everyone expecting a, a range of prices over time or. Um, perhaps it would adversely affect the way in which they've bought other pay-per-views going forward. So uh, that's one reason. The other reason why they can't just cancel it like this unless they absolutely have to. Like They have contracts. They have, I think, a minimum amount of required events they have to give to the pay-per-view uh, MSO distributors. And um, changing it comes with a variety of costs and expenses. Maybe FS1 can't accommodate them. I'm not sure what's on that same night. Well, there won't be any baseball, I don't believe. Uh, let's see, game seven's tonight. I don't think it would last. I, I don't know what it would be on maybe college football. What's on December 10th? Fox Sports 1. The UFC is now. But what comes on after that? Let's see. NCAA football schedule. 
Hmm? Nothing. I don't know. Oh, uh, Army versus Navy at three. <laughs> Terrible programs. Although Navy's better this year. Uh, the, I don't know. I don't know is the long answer in terms of what they could do for FS1, but the bigger one is the pricing can't change, and um, they owe they owe their MSOs a certain amount, and changing that would be extraordinarily expensive to them, even if they're just going to not make much money at all on 216, or 206, I should say. Okay, it is 215. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. All right. Do you think Canada should be a bit upset by the way? Excuse me. Do you think Canada should be a bit upset by always getting the shaft on cards? Yeah. If I was a Canadian fan, I would be upset. Um, sure. Yeah. Would the UFC have a 207 presser knowing that most MMA journalists will ask Ronda questions she won't want to answer? They might. They might keep it short. Um, they might do individual pressers with invite only. You never know. Someone says, they're glad to hear me speaking truth about the Reebok leather jacket nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I, is anyone going to buy that? I mean, maybe. Maybe I don't understand the market very well. That could be it. What do you think about Boz Rutten saying the Reebok deal could be terminated in 2017? I haven't heard that. I'd have to hear his comments. Judging by his performances in rounds two through five, does Woodley need to go for broke in the first to up his chances versus Wonderboy? You would think. But even then, that would make his performance in two through five even worse. So there's a bit of a double-edged sword there. But yeah, I think certainly the, I would say the first three rounds are really where he has to win or, win or lose this, basically. If there is no Ronda or Connor and GSP for most of 2017, truly that puts Cyborg in a strong position regarding pay-per-view. And John Jones, if he's back. Um, yeah. Yeah. 2017 might be really interesting especially if the Professional Fighters Association can get things going by the end of that year as well. Uh, how can WME be a, both a promoter, owner of the UFC, and an agent, Weidman? Um, it's not true that they're representing Weidman. They're representing Rousey. But the question is not really they're representing Rousey. What does that mean for people who aren't represented by um, WME or uh, by their rivals, like in the case of St. Pierre, who's represented by CAA. So let me refer you to Eric McGracken's um, Combat Sports Law blog. He was on my show about it. There's actually a SoundCloud clip that I have. Uh, let's see. I will pull that up. Let's see. So you can hear it. It's five minutes. I'm not going to do it, but I'll just tweet it to you, and I'll let him explain. Basically, it's the, the short answer is to what extent relevant athletic commissions want to interpret their own regulatory code, how, in other words, how they interpret it, and to what extent they wish to enforce it. And it looks like it probably won't be either, but there you go. It deals with how manager is defined, essentially. right? How, what defines management? What role do you have to occupy and how is that determined? And to the extent that they uh, wish to pursue that regulatory code. There you go. All right. Oops, wrong one. Here you go. All right. 
No shame in cardio tapping as long as it's an anomaly. I cardio tapped 45 minutes into a marathon from a body triangle. I guess. Kurt Osiander might disagree, but I guess. Over under, we get shirts before UFC 300. It's a funny joke. Fantasy fights. Barboza versus McGregor. Ooh. Boy, um, Barboza's chin. Um... Say Barboza, but let's see how McGregor looks against Eddie. Prime Anderson Silva versus Rumble. Prime Anderson. Holloway versus Cruz. Holloway. Jared from Subway versus, <laughs> versus CM Punk. I'll leave that one alone. My Miami Dolphins will win the Super Bowl before Luke Thomas gets these shirts made. Y'all are some haters. Who would win in a jiu-jitsu match, Gunnar Nelson or Dylan Dennis? Uh, it'd be pretty equal, but right now, Dylan Dennis. Do you think the PFA will be able to present their nine-fighter board by UFC 205? That is my understanding, yes. Will UFC 207 end up being the final time we see Ronda fight in the octagon? Only if she loses. Which UFC prospects have the poten potential to be a future champ? Duho Choi, Smolka Rodriguez, etc. Uh, none of those stand out to me as championship contenders. I have to think about that one a little bit more. I get this question all the time. Which would be your entrance song? Which fighter would fit better on that song here would be my entrance song just put this to bed because i don't think about this one very often but here you go this is what it would be right here ready The Smiths, Big Mouth Strikes Again. All right. Um, true or false? Fighters are closer to NASCAR drivers than NFL players. Just another reason to have sponsors. I don't know what that means. What is the biggest rumored MMA fight that never happened? Oh, Fedor versus Brock, for sure. God, when that fell through, when it was rumored and it fell through, you have no idea professionally how devastated I was. Um, Thoughts on PFA and MMAFA, positive or negative? Definitely positive. Uh, Shakare Bisping has to happen at 206 now, right? What are the chances Jacare gets Bisping at 206? If 206 falls between 205 and 207, do you see the UFCW pulling back on the amount of cards they put on for 2017? Okay, that is the relevant question, right? Everyone talks about them scaling back, not really the number of events, but doing it sort of geographically, like we're pulling back from there are these tentacles of this American promotion back to something more North American. And that's a relevant consideration. But the other one is, I think WME is looking at this and saying, okay, you won't be always be able to do it, but we never want to be in a position like we are with UFC 206. They're still going to have 13 pay-per-views, according to the reports from MMA Junkie and the documentations in that deck. But they don't want to be in a position where they have to go to a a, a, a city 
with this lackluster of a card and risk this kind of, I mean, embarrassment's not the word, but just, uh, it's a, this is a waste. You could pull this card for spare parts and it would be, or, or just remove some of these fights altogether. You wouldn't miss much. Main and co-main, obviously not, but like for a lot of them, for a lot of them, absolutely inessential, totally inessential. And I think they really want to avoid that. They want to go to a city and yes, they want to have a presence with the local, um, fighters and the local community and and the fight fans there generally of course but they want to go to there with bouts of consequence and if they don't have enough of those to go around they want to dial it back so that they do i think one of the lessons of 206 is let's see to i mean they already mentioned that they want to start they, that they, that after 2014 stacking cards or putting fighters on retainer to be ready was a big portion of why they had a better year obviously conor mcgregor and ronda being 60 percent of revenue sales but um i think more of that real emphasis on stacking is going to continue. I cannot get over these gym wars going on, especially with CME. CTE, you mean. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Just saw Luque, Vicente Luque, going so hard. Yeah, and someone sent me um, someone sent me um, a clip of uh, Kamaru Usman and I think Michael Johnson going at it. Guys, I don't know why everyone is surprised at that. I'm surprised that you're surprised at that. Those are common. They happen in gyms every day across America. They are super, super common. It's a big talking point for us about C CTE and damage and hard sparring and everything else. Guys, that is an ingrained practice. And I mean ingrained. It is like something like saying like going to an, uh, an elementary school and removing arithmetic or something. You could do it. It would still be a school. There would still be things of value. But in those guys' minds, there would be something missing. I'm not equating hard sparring to arithmetic for developmental education. I'm still be saying is what a priority, what a part of it is that they currently believe it to be, however damaging they believe it to be. It is a huge, huge part. Nothing about that is rare. You spend enough times in enough gyms, and you will see guys go ape on each other. That's just what happens. Um, don't be surprised by it. The question is, what do we do to get that kind of thing to stop being ingrained, to stop being such a common experience? It's like showing up to the bus and being surprised at the smell inside. Why would you ever be surprised at the smell inside? Do you know who rides the bus? It's that kind of thing. All right. On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad do you think WME IMG has buyer's remorse? Two at most. What is your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, good one. Um, favorite Halloween candy. And we say Halloween candy, you mean like, like the kind they make during... You know what? Go F yourselves, losers. You know what I like? I like candy corn. How about that? And everyone's like, it's just candle wax. Good, I like candle wax. I have an eating disorder around candle wax. Drop dead. Go get hit by a bus and I hope the bus backs up and hits you again. I like candy corn. I've always liked it. I will continue to like it. You can go drop dead in the street in front of your loved ones. Candy corn is the shit. So there you go. Um, do you think Shane Carwin is the favorite to win the Ryzen Openweight Grand Prix? I have no idea how he looks these days, but sure. How well do you think Weidman can handle Romero's grappling and wrestling? Do you believe Romero wins a decision? I think we're going to know the answer to that by the middle of the second round. I mean, we, I guess we might know the answer to that in the first round, but I feel like Romero's speed and explosion and like insane wrestling takedown defense is going to be a real big factor in that first one. The question is how fast does he slow down? How much rust does he have? You know.
Any update on B, uh, Bilal uh, Makov? No. What a great question this is, man. Uh, how similar to an opponent does a sparring partner need to be in order for him or her to confer benefit? What a great question. And someone's asking about the Alvarez's Connor clone. That is such a tremendously good question. Wow. Well, it's very, it's, it, it, this is hard to say. This is a hard question to answer. Here's what I would say to the best of my ability. You want to, you want a few things out of sparring, right? And, and having sparring partners that can do things for you, whether or not they're exactly mimicking or providing some other kind of service. One is to sharpen the things you're good at to get them ready, uh, both your general ability as well as specific strategies, right? When they do this, I'm ready to do this. Or when I pump the jab, I want to have a level shot right behind it, right behind it, right behind it, right? Like you're just timing certain things. You just want everything to be in place. And of course, having better sparring partners generally will be of service to them. Now you're asking about somebody who can provide a certain kind of service by mimicking. The answer to that is really going to be in the eye of the beholder insofar as why would you bring in someone like that? The reason why is because you would want to take away the element of surprise. You don't want to get in there and go against someone who has a particular style and a particular set of strengths that can be difficult to manage. Let's say it's Wonderboy Thompson or McGregor or anybody else. You're bringing in someone that strikes like them because you will have seen this already in some form. You will have seen some of these combinations either on film or, of course, the guy starting across from you. You will have seen some of these reactions that they have if that partner was good enough. The question is, how much of a surprise factor did they eliminate come fight time? Because they're not going to get all of it. So when I say it will depend, it will depend on to what extent that fighter felt like win or lose. Were they surprised by anything? Even if they, you know, you say when you're supposed to zag and you eat something and everything can change, you can still feel like that sparring partner was really um, helpful and beneficial for you. But that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to eliminate as much of the element of surprise, of the newness of it all, by bringing in someone like that. So let's see. Let's see if Alvarez is not merely like, I got everything I want to do ready to rock on its own. I've got no surprise factor because of what I did with this other sparring partner, and I was able to meld the two. That lack of surprise, in fact, enabled me to then have all the things I needed to be going and ready to rock because nothing in there was something I didn't anticipate. How many times have you, you've, I've done a thousand scrums with fighters, and sometimes I always ask him, and that people don't like this question because it can get tiresome, but it's a valuable one. What surprised you in there? And a lot of times people will be like, eh, not so much. It basically went the way they went. Sometimes it'd be like, you know what? I didn't. I thought his power was bigger, or his speed really shook me, or that combination. I, I didn't. I wasn't expecting that. And sometimes you'll get guys who are like adamant, like nothing. Everything he was going to try, we knew it. We were ready for it. We had prepared for it. I have the best coaches. I have the best game plan. I have the best sparring partners. We knew exactly what he was going to do and when he did it, and you saw the fruits of that labor. That's the spectrum you're working on about bringing in somebody else. That's kind of what you're looking for is to what extent, by the time that bell rings, are you surprised by nothing? Let's see. Let's see. Uh, how much leverage would Connor gain if Rousey retired after losing to Nunes? I think, I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario where he would have more leverage than he has now, but that's the barrel of the gun we're looking at. Um, especially, okay, if Connor 
absolutely puts on a brilliant performance against Eddie Alvarez. Let's say it's a barn-burning fight, back and forth, but in the end, Connor absolutely just demolishes him, okay? And I don't know what he's going to announce afterwards, but let's just hold on for that for a second. And then Rousey goes in there, and the opposite happens. It's a terrible fight, and she just gets wrecked, like Misha Tate got wrecked against Nunes. The pimp hand, the pimp hand of Conor McGregor would literally, <laughs> not literally, alter the gravitational force of everything that glues to the earth. It would it would alter the way in which the earth revolves around the sun as he drug that pimp hand around and reared back to begin smacking people left to right. It would be extraordinary. It, I mean, I mean, you want to talk about him calling his own shots now? My goodness. I mean, uh, <laughs> ooh, that would be uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary event and moment in time in the sport. I can't imagine what he would do. I really can't. All right. We have to go. Uh, I want to thank everyone for watching. Guys, um, we'll have plenty of coverage for Bellator here at MMA Fighting on Friday as well as Saturday's UFC Fight Night 98. Please stick around and, of course, watch for that. My show is at 4 p.m. I'm going to have Eddie Bravo and then Mark Hunt's lawyers on my show today, Sirius XM 93, 4 p.m. Please uh, uh, be on the lookout for that. Give this video a thumbs up. Share it. Like it. Be a good person. I always like good people. If you enjoy candy corn, stand up loud, stand proud, because there's nothing wrong with that. Appreciate you guys watching. Check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes as well. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, you know what to do. Stay frosty.